There's a day coming that I don't want to miss. And that's why this week, in the middle of all the things that were pressing me, getting ready for Sabbath school, doing Bible Q&A, programming, visitation. My wife said, what are you going to preach about? And this entire week taught me what to preach about. When your schedule is that busy, you just have to have endurance. (laughs) Push through it. Keep going. Don't quit. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Loving Father in heaven, you have given us the greatest example of what endurance is all about. As we stand on the portals of a world crumbling on the left and a new world waiting for us on the right, we pray that this Grand intersection will be one that finds your people enduring, holding on, looking above and beyond the distractions of this world. We pray that we can be a people that are so dissatisfied with what we have seen that our eyes are reaching to the invisible. As Abraham said, looking for a city which hath foundations whose builder and maker is God. And so, Lord, now take this message. Find that fertile soil and awaken within us a divine endurance, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It happens every four years. I watched intently as more than 200 nations put their names in the hat to be the place where the Olympic Games were going to be hosted. It is the pride of prides on the earth. Everyone wants their nation, their country to be the place where the Olympic Games are hosted. And it is almost as if the media just really works up the moment. And they take the camera out in a large Zoom as representatives from all over the world are in this large auditorium. They are all there waiting for their names to be drawn, for their city to be the place where the Olympic Games are hosted. And when they take out that envelope and they open it up and the country that will host the Olympics is named, there is not only exuberance in the representative, but if you can measure the Richter scale, that country is all ablaze. Everybody is excited, our country, and then the building begins. Millions, and in some cases billions, begin to be poured into an economy when they know that the clock is now against them and they have four years to get ready for people from every nation, class, and language to pour into their country to look at the game of all games, the pride of all prides, the showdown of all showdowns. And so today, come with me 
to the 2008 Olympic Games in Beijing, China. And look at a stadium packed with 80,000 attendees, 204 nations, and 10,942 athletes. Every seat is a coveted seat because only but so many people out of, a, out of a nation, out of a world of billions, only 80,000 will be privileged to Joe to be in there to watch the showdown between the countries. More than 324 different types of competitions. And every single representative that is chosen to stand on that field understands his or her obligation. They're not there for themselves. They got a whole nation behind them. They've been chosen. They've been selected. They want to win. They have come to this moment. Preparation on the dark days and the bright days have preceded them and they have lived and they have sweated and they have chosen the proper diet and they have exercised and worked out when no one is watching because this was the moment they were born for. It was an amazing, amazing Olympic. I watched some of what I could and I certain things about the Olympics I like to watch, like the basketball, but I always like to watch the running. The field of competitors in 2008 for the 100-meter race were comprised of 80 runners from 64 different nations. But when they get to the final showdown, there are only the selected few that filtered to the top by working hard and going to bed at the right time and choosing the right habits and making right decisions, coached and mentally conditioned. And they are told that this is your moment. This is your only opportunity. When you get on the line, you will decide the pride of your nation. What a moment. What a, what a pressured moment. Well, after the field was narrowed down, the stage was set for the final 100 meter. And when that gun was sounded, Jamaican sprinter Usain Bolt was clocked at bursting forth at a speed never before known at 23.37 miles per hour. They said when he crossed the finish line, he was clocked at 27 miles an hour. And he broke a record that still stands to this day. It was at the Beijing Games in 2008 that Jamaican-born, my wife loved that because she's from Jamaica. The Jamaican, her, her heritage is from Jamaica. She was born in England. But Jamaica was the earthquake of the world when he was named the fastest man alive, the first man ever to win the 100-meter and 200-meter events, and to this very day, the record still stands. It was amazing what he said when he was interviewed about the race. He, he commented by saying, it is not how you start, but how you finish that matters. It is not how you start, but how you finish that matters. You see, when we think about the Christian life, it echoes the sentiment because today there is a nation that is concerned about how we finish the race. All of heaven is concerned about how 
we end the race. Heaven is concerned. Unfallen worlds are watching to see how we as Christians are going to finish the race. That's why we have the scripture. When Usain Bolt crossed the line, he said these words. He says, there are better starters. This was amazing to me. He said, there are better starters than me, but I am a stronger finisher. Now, 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 this is not about him, but I want to emphasize a particular point. You see, how we begin the Christian life is not the focus, but it's how we end that makes the difference where we stand on the podium called the Sea of Glass. When the palm branches are being waved, when golden crowns are being placed on the head of those who, by the grace of God, have endured the race and are standing in that glorious day as all the unfallen worlds hail the power of the blood of Jesus. That's why the Apostle Paul, in writing, speaks about this day, and it is almost as if he takes a page out of the out of the setting of an Olympic game. He says in Hebrews 12 and verse 1, as he talks about the heavenly Olympics, he said these words, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside, say it together with me, every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, And let us run together with what? With endurance, the race that is set before us. Athletes are often interviewed, what kind of gear are you? And they said they seek to wear the lightest shoes. Some of these running shoes are almost paramount to a slip-on. And in many cases, the athletes have these shoes made specifically for their feet. Grams. Not ounces, grams, because they want to lay aside everything that may hinder them from making that final race, fitting them for that final competition. But also, my brethren, today, preparation for the return of Jesus is a daily preparation. They don't get ready for the competition a week before or a month before. They are training for years. I had a privilege of watching a documentary of how Olympians train you know, I like that kind of thing. Sometimes, you know, when I get in a funk, you ever get in a funk? Come on, say something. You ever kind of get where you need somebody to say something to get you out of it? So I like to watch something that just kind of stirs me up. I get into my Bible and read, try to find stories of success, and then I come away with this reality. If they could do it, maybe I can do it. Now, I'm not talking about being a fast Olympic runner because I'm past that prime. Thank you. No amens necessary. (laughs) But in in the context of Christianity, we are told I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So the preparation the preparation of heaven has been made. God has made everything available. That's why each day we are called to scrutinize our preparation for that final showdown because it's coming. 
If you listen to the news, you can hear it reverberating around us. If you look at the economy, you can see gas prices going through the roof, instability in our economy. And the world is on the verge of something that is unknown in the eyes of many, but it is not a surprise to those of us who know that Jesus is coming again. When you think about what we see, we think about that day-by-day preparation. You know, there is no day that you are not a Christian. You shouldn't consider your Christianity to end when the service at church ends. When When you're in the store at Walmart, you should be a Christian. I don't know if I share this with you, but my wife and I were in Walmart and I got there to get some tires or some work on my vehicle and she got there later after me and, and I put in my backpack. I think I shared about that last week. You got to always be ready because God wants us to be Christians all the time. Whether you're in a restaurant, whether you're in a store, whether you're in a plane, you must be a, a Christian all the time. I thought about how this famous runner, Usain Bolt, was able to be as successful as he was. And this is what he said, which I thought this should be the the mantra of the Christian. This should be what we say. He said, easy is not an option. There's so many Christians that want easy religion. I'll be this or I'll do that if it's easy. But he said, there is no, easy is not an option. No days off, never quit, be fearless. Talent you have naturally, but he said this, skill is only developed by what? Hours and hours of work. I believe that those that spend more time in their Bible are becoming more fit for the final competition ahead of us. Those who spend time in studying God's word and disconnecting from the things that distract and examining and scrutinizing the way they live and the things they do and how they speak and how they interact with one another. Those who are examining their fitness for the final competition are recognizing that for Christians, yes, ease is not an option. There are are no days off when we are Christians. Every day God is calling us to scrutinize our preparation for what is ahead of us. We find in Great Controversy this quote that's amazing. Great Controversy, the 1888 edition, page 472, paragraph 1. Notice what we are told. The desire for an easy religion that requires no striving, no self-denial, no divorce from the follies of the world has made the doctrine of faith and faith only a popular doctrine. But what saith the word of God, says the Apostle James? He goes on. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man says he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? What is the answer? No. Well, thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is what? Is dead. Now, when we read that, We often interpret it that means, well, we ought to do something to advance the gospel, or we ought to participate somehow in Christian activity, do something for the church, be an elder, deacon, deaconess, get involved in some aspect of uh, something for God, something to advance the gospel. But the Apostle Paul takes us far deeper than just working for the kingdom. 
So when the Bible talks about faith without works, it does say Abraham was justified by his works. His works confirmed his faith. His faith activated his works. But the Apostle Paul, when he, talk, when he talks about this faith without works, now James says it, but the Apostle Paul chimes in in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. And we've read this before, but today we're going to see it in a different light in the context of preparation for what is ahead of us. Notice the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. Turn in your Bibles there. If not, you can see it on the screen. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved... As you have also obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my what? Absence. Look at the word. He says, work out your own salvation with what? Fear and trembling. Now I want to go ahead and fix this a little bit here and put it together. Eternal salvation is heaven's job can you agree on that bible says he shall save his people from their sins so no matter what we do we can't save ourselves salvation is not our action so what do you think the bible means when it says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling eternal salvation is heaven's gift but the demonstration of that salvation is done on earth the demonstration of a person walking in a saving relationship is done on earth how will people know about the gift of salvation unless they see that gift being demonstrated in the Christian's life? So it's one thing to say I'm a Christian, but it's something altogether different for, for people to see that demonstrated. Like somebody might see, you read the story of Usain Bolt when he was a young boy. He was in his backyard running all the time. So people, when he won the Olympic, people said, this boy was running since he was a child. He was demonstrating his desire to one day be there. He saw it in his mind's eye. When he was trying to take days off, his coach would come to him as he was sleeping past 7 o'clock and say, get up, get up, you have work to do. He said, but the games are not, but seven months down the road, he said, there are no days off. You got to work it out now. If you want to be there, you got to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does this mean? You see... As you think about work out your own salvation, we often minimize the gravity of what Jesus did at the intersection of our eternal destiny. When Jesus walked the earth as the man, Christ Jesus. He did not see as the Son of God, he saw as the Son of Man. Follow me very carefully. So when he faced trials as we do, he didn't see the end of it as we don't. So when he was at that intersection of deciding, should I yield to my will or the will of the Father, as many of us often face, because there are times during the week that we are faced with, should I do this or should I do that? And then we yield to our own will and we say, well, I could do God's will later, but I'm going to do my will now. At the intersection, I want you to get this. Just focus this morning. I want you to grab this. You guys could go home and sleep as long as you want after church, but just 
Don't let the devil put you to sleep now. When Jesus faced the intersection, Luke, in Luke chapter 22, open your Bibles there, Luke records an aspect of Jesus that we don't fully understand. Even Jesus had a moment called, I don't want to. I don't want to. Do any of you ever have an I don't want to moment during the week? I know a lot of you guys have it on Wednesday. (laughs) See, I don't want to. Where's my hobby horse? I don't want to. But Jesus understands you because he walked in your shoes. Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the Son of Man, had an I don't want to moment. He had an intersection where he had to decide, hmm, I don't really want to. But for you to appreciate this, you've got to understand what was hanging on that moment. At the end of the decision he was about to make was your destiny and mine. Not just a bad day. Not just I didn't like the way he looked at me. That was, to me, the most defining moment in the life of Christ. A lot of people think it was the cross. No, it wasn't. It was this moment. Because had it not been for this moment, there would have been no cross. Am I right, Joe? He knows where I'm going. So when you look at this defining moment, and I want to speak about this today because in the context of endurance, we all have the I don't want to moment. Can you imagine if these athletes said to their coach, I don't want to go? What do you mean you don't want to? After all that we put into it, you don't want to? No, there is no you don't want to. I don't want to wake up today. No, you will wake up. You got seven months of preparation. You will get up because we are investing in you. You will get up. But God didn't say to Jesus, no, you will do that. And God doesn't say to us, no, you will go. No, you will do that. He gives every one of us the freedom to make a choice. So this idea that we don't have choice is not in heaven's book. Everybody is a free moral agent. Everybody has the right to choose his or her own destiny and stand before God based on the choice you make. But look at this. This, to me, is probably one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible because Jesus is with his disciples. He's now contemplating the closing scenes of his life, and he knows what's coming, and he's he's slowly beginning to realize, wait a minute, as 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 I remember this now, the Father has revealed portions of this to me that's why whenever he was about to be arrested he would often say this is not my moment this is not my moment so he would disappear from the crowds or they would try to arrest him and he would vanish this is not my moment but this was not the moment that he could free himself from he had to face it look how luke talks about it in luke chapter 22 verse luke chapter 22 beginning with verse 41 and As he withdrew from them, that is, from his disciples, 
about a stone's throw away, what is the first thing he did? He knelt down and what did he do? Pray. Let me pause before I go to the next verse. Whenever you find yourself, hear me carefully, whenever you find yourself faced with a moment where your humanity is fighting against your divine obligation, pray. We don't do that. We allow our humanity to decide our adherence to a divine obligation. But what we fail to realize is what comes after that divine obligation. We focus on that moment, but that is not the moment. It's the moment of decision, but it's not the moment that you're looking forward to. Now look at this. So he's praying, and what is he praying? Verse 42, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Did the father say, no, it's not my will? No, he didn't respond. But look what Jesus said. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, why is that significant in the context of endurance? I don't want to, I don't want to run ahead of myself. But I have to say this. The choice, that the, the statement that Jesus made Brothers and sisters, the statement that Jesus made, not my will, but yours be done. Why am I excited about that? Because that one decision sealed my salvation. And he did not make that decision on his own accord. He prayed. Who do you think he was praying to? He's praying to his father, Father, if this is your will, no response back, no, this is not my will, yes, this is my will. He knew as God was revealing to him, he prayed. And at that intersection, when we get to the intersection of our will over God's will, we should pray the same prayer, not my will, but yours be done. Now, why is this important? Many of us fail to realize what happened after that. And I'm going to reveal it to you. If Jesus did not say, not my will, but yours be done, then Philippians 2 and verse 13 would not have been written. I guarantee you that. If Philippians 2, 12, that says, work out your own salvation, that's what Jesus had to do. He had to work out whether or not he's going to save himself from that moment or surrender himself to save somebody else. Are you grabbing that? We could save ourselves from our Christian obligations, but by backing out of our Christian obligations, by backing out of the very will that God is revealing to us, somebody will not have the benefit through our lives of experiencing the salvation of God because we backed out of that moment. When Jesus decided not to back out, Notice what he gave his father permission to do. Here it is. Philippians 2 verse 13. Remember, work out your own salvation. When he decided it's not my will, but my father's will, then who began working in him? Let's say this together. For it is God who works in you both to what? 
will and to what else? Do of his good pleasure. Why is the word will there? Because Jesus embraced his father's will over his will. And when he did that, there was no conflict between the father and the son. They were on the same accord. When we decide that God's will is more important than ours, divinity takes over and accomplishes through humanity what we could never do on our own. But too often we get to the intersection, well, I don't want to. I don't want to. So that I don't want to moment, God says, well, I can't work in you because I can't work in you to accomplish my will because you don't want to. You see, we are vessels of God's will. And God's will is to be accomplished through us, not, in, not for us, but through us. There's a difference. Because God, I'm going to go a little deeper. The united agreement to save humanity was decided by the Father and the Son. Can we agree on that? So now Jesus steps out of eternity into time, lays off the powers he had complete access to, and says, I'm not going to use them in humanity because he couldn't use his divine powers and say at the same time he was tempted in all points like we are if he used his divinity to free him from the moments that humans would face that are identified with his life. He has to face life the way we face life. We face life the way he faced life. There had to be a unity between the Son of God and the Son of Man and us. So he laid down that power that he had complete access and, and authority over and came down here to put on this human flesh. Watch this. In the very same way, when we partake, so the reverse is true about us. Jesus started in divinity. Where do we begin? In humanity. You can't miss this. He started in divinity and put on humanity. We start in humanity and become partakers of a divine nature. Why do we need that? Because without that divine nature, God cannot work in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. He's not going to accomplish his will for us. He's going to accomplish his will, how? Through us. For God is working in us, both to will and to do of his good, of his good pleasure. One of the reasons I believe that the experience that God intends for you to have is not there yet is because you yield to the I don't want to moments and put your will ahead of God's will. What would have happened to Jesus, Curtis, if he put his will ahead of the Father's will? You know what would have happened? He would have been lost and so would we have been. Because he came for that moment to, del to deliver us from ourselves. There was that trading post. Laying down divinity to put on humanity when we give our lives to Christ, we lay down humanity to put on divinity. Can you say amen? So there's a trading places. And then the Jesus who says, 
I, my own self, can do nothing. Now we can say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Look at the change. I can't do anything. That's his place as a human. But in Christ, I can do all things. That's our place when we partake of a divine nature. But I'm going to go even deeper than that. God's will was pointing Jesus in the, in the direction of the cross. Where did I say God's will was pointing Jesus? Say it together. In the direction of the cross. Say that together. In the direction of the cross. Now, the reason I want you to grab this is because a lot of us think that the cross was the destination. No. It was a stop along the way to the destination. I know what I'm talking about. Just hold on. The reason why I say the cross is a stop along the way is because the cross is the place of suffering. Is it not? The cross is the place of shame. The cross is a place where people despised him. Am I right? Suffering, shame, and he was despised. He didn't go to the cross for suffering, shame, and being despised. He went to the cross for something greater than that. Okay, you don't believe me. <laughs> Hebrews 12.2. Hebrews 12.2. You see, well, wait, wait, let me not give it to you yet. I've got to build it back up. We remember the suffering of Jesus, but many of us fail to realize that his suffering was not the focus. His suffering was not the focus. What am I talking about today? Say it together. It's not a hard word. Can we all say that? So what am I talking about? Okay. Do you think that an athlete's muscles burn when they're working out? Do you think they get exhausted? Do you think they feel like hitting the ground? Do you think they say to their coach, enough, enough? Jesus understands all of those emotions because he said, I don't want to do it, but I'm going to give in to my father's will because he knew that the cross, as the athlete knows, before the finish line is the sacrifice of the days and nights and the training and the proper diet and the exercise and the denial of certain things because he is not doing it for the denial of all these things. His mind is beyond all that suffering. See, when he gets that gold medal, Terry, he's going to say it was worth it. All those hard nights, all those long days, all that training, all that anxiety, all that stress, all those burning muscles, it was worth it because he knew that the suffering, the long nights, the burning, the training was not the destiny. It was a stop along the way to the destiny. So back up what you say, Pastor John. Here it is. Look at the destiny. Looking, Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the who? Author and what else? Finisher. That's how it began. He's going to end it. Of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. But what was the destiny? 
and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The cross was not the destiny. Sitting with his father was the destiny. Now, he also promises the same to us. To him that overcometh will sit with me in my father's throne as I have overcome and also sat with my father in his throne. The cross is now. But brethren, one day I look forward to sitting on God's throne with my big brother, Jesus. And by the way, we are going to reign as priests of God and of Christ for a thousand years. But what is the focal point of this story? The focal point is enduring is needed because abandoning our will in favor of God's will will bring temporary suffering, but there's a joy beyond putting your will in the hand of God. I'm headed there. It is not natural. It is not natural to want to suffer. But what do we call suffering? I don't recall any of you going to jail for being a Seventh-day Adventist. You know what you call suffering? You know what, the, you know what Christians nowadays call suffering? Not wanting to do what God's Word says to do. That's my cross. For some people, the Sabbath is suffering, so they spend all their time trying to get rid of God's Sabbath. For other people, the commandments of God, they call that the old law. They say it was nailed to the cross so we don't have to be under that burden, when in fact, it is an evidence of God's, our love for God. That's a, if you force me to do that, oh, I don't want to suffer and do that. So for everybody that has his will in the way of God's will, we all find these things that we feel that we don't have to do. But Jesus, when he put his will in the hand of the Father, there was nothing that he was unwilling to do because he relinquished his will and said, Father, I'm getting myself out of the way. If suffering is what you want me to endure, I'm going to look beyond the suffering to the joy that will come after that. And so what did he decide to do? He decided to suffer according to the will of God. Look at 1 Peter 4 and verse 19. Look at this. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the what? Will of God commit their souls or commit their lives to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. What makes God faithful? What makes God faithful when we don't really want to do what God says? I like the way that Charles Spurgeon said it. You might want to take a picture of this. This is, this, is very, this is powerful. Charles Spurgeon said this. The glory of God's faithfulness is that no sin of ours has ever made him unfaithful. Isn't that deep, Ron? No sin that we have ever committed has made God unfaithful. 
Come on, you Pentecostals, say amen. amen. That is a hallelujah statement. Because if God said, you know what, because, you, because of what you just did, I, 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 I am no longer going to show you my faithfulness. But that Jeremiah says, his mercies, his faithfulness is new every morning. His mercies are there. His faithfulness is new every morning. When I wake up tomorrow, God's mercy and faithfulness is going to be there, not because of me, but in spite of me. So what does the endurance have to do with anything? You see, what he's saying is as children of God, we will face what Jesus faced. But also as children of God, if we endure well, we will be blessed as Jesus was blessed. Look at this. Paul made this very clear. The endurance, many of us don't want to endure because we don't see what's after that. What I'm saying today is the endurance is just the middle of the scenario. The endurance is not the focal point, but it's the endurance is what we need to get to what is after that. The Olympian understands that. When he or she gets that gold medal and the entire nation that they represent is, is praising them for their hard work, they understand that sweating and, and hard work really makes a difference. They're not even thinking about that. Paul says this very clearly here in Romans 8, verse 16 to 18. The Bible says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Who are we, friends? We are children. That's a present statement. That's a present tense. And if children, then heirs. Who are we, friends? Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. In other words, we are both, when, when God signed the deed for salvation because of Jesus, we also have been included in the benefits of eternity. Amen. But look at, the pro, look at the blessing. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be what? Glorified. How? Together. And that's why we, we read this passage. We often read it by itself. But I want to include the bigger picture. Because suffering with Christ is far deeper than the suffering. The suffering is not the focus. Here's the, here's the focus. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed where? In us. What is that being said? A lot of us, you know, today, a lot of Christians are made of, they're not made of wood. A lot of Christians are made of marshmallows. Just a little bit of heat and they start melting. Can't handle difficulty, can't handle hardship. You know, there's some folk that are not yet where we are. Some of them are in our church. Some of them are in our family. We work with some of them. Some people have the skill of pushing us over the edge. But when your will and God's will are merged together and you recognize that that person is not yet where God wants him or her to be, you'll be able to endure that moment like Jesus and let them lose their mind and like a lamb led to the slaughter, you don't have to say a word. You got to simply say, Lord, 
Work on her. Work on him. And then God at that moment wants to reveal what he has done in your life. You know what? I'm still learning this. Because I'm at the place where I get shot at a lot. And there are days when the shooting becomes, you know, you know, it's not 22 caliber. It's like AK-47 shooting or AR-15. The, the, the comments, the statements. Sometimes I get an email that just sends me into Brooklyn mode. And I want to lash out. And I recognize as I'm reading it, wait a minute, it's not me. It's the way they see it. And I back it up a number of notches, maybe four or five notches, and I, I take a breath, I vent to my wife, and then I write a really nice response. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You're like... Then you get on that, and then God takes over, and your fingers are revealing the will of God. And then there are those days when you got to do this, or you got to do that, and you, you don't want to. And I remember not too long ago, Oswald Chambers says, when we get to the place where the work of God is too much for us, we have come to the place where we fail to realize that we haven't allowed God to work through us. I want to say that one more time. I'll say it a different way. If we feel that we are the ones that have to do God's work, we fail to realize that it is God who's working in us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And you'll find out as I go further on, I, I just I want to read this quotation and show you right after this what I mean by that. The point of the matter is, if God brings you to, to a moment, God can sustain you in that moment. If God allows you to be exposed by something that will test your character, test your nerves, test your fortitude, test your endurance, he knew it was coming. He just wants to see if he can reveal to you who you are and how much you still need him. So he brings you to those moments and say, see, you thought you were ready, but you just ran into a runner faster than yourself. Because even Usain Bolt eventually lost a race. He even, he said, he said, I never forgot that my very first track meet, I fell. But we don't remember any of the runners that won the race when he fell. But we remember him when he won. So we will fall at times. But I want you to notice this. Christ Object Lessons. Beautiful quotation. Page 333 and paragraph 1. As the will of man, what's the next word? Cooperates with the will of God. It becomes whoo, omnipotent. Do you know what that word means? Omnipotent means powerful. Omni means in every direction, your life becomes powerful. Not you, but you have decided, like Jesus did, to participate with the will of God. And when Jesus, as the Son of Man, participated and stepped into the will of his Father, he, he clearly showed to the world, this has always been the will of my Father. So from this point on, I'm going to go through everything I'm going to go through. I'm not going to say a word because they see the cross, but I see the empty tomb. They see the nails, but I see the crown. They see the thorns, but I see the right hand of the Father. They see the Roman soldiers, but I see the millions that will walk through the gates into the new Jerusalem one day because of my desire to merge my will with my heavenly Father. 
I hope you're getting it. It goes on. Whatever is to be done at his command may be accomplished, how? In his strength. A lot of us fail to realize that. We think we got to do it. No, no. If God brings you to it, that's why this part is what you've heard before. All his biddings are enablings. What that means, if God brings you to it, God will bring you how? Through it. A lot of us don't get to that. We don't get to the enabling part because we see it coming and we say, I don't want to. Whatever it is, whether it's your personal study life, whether it's fellowship, whatever it is, anything that God directs you to, if you see it before you and you say, I don't want to, you fail to, to experience what's on the other side of that. God's enablings are God's biddings. So if you say, I don't want to, and you guys think that by not wanting to, you're, well, I don't care what Pastor John says. Hey, my job is to encourage you in Christ. But if you get used to my voice and say, ah, oh, he's just on his hobby horse like Moses, like Noah was. Yeah, he's on his hobby horse. Yeah, he's talking about, he's even talking about that flood for 80 years. Yeah, even talking about that flood for 90 years. You know, it's been more than 100 years that that crazy man and his sons and the, are building this boat. He's been talking about that for a long time. <laughs> Year 120, somebody was somewhere dancing. They were doing the brontosaurus or the paradectal. Dancing. And a drop of water fell on their wicked nose. And they realized what he had been saying for 120 years was true. The danger in getting to the place where you hear like Charlie Brown. Exactly. Some of you got Charlie Brown hearing. The adults are speaking and all you hear is wah, wah, wah. They did that to the prophets of God. Let me take you through. When Stephen was being stoned, he says, how many prophets has God sent to you? How many? And he started going through the lines and naming the names. You ought to read that there in Acts chapter 7 and 8. How many prophets have God sent to you? What did you do? You ignored them. You stoned them. You persecuted them. And here you are today on the outside of the will of God. They got so mad they stoned him to death. Let me caution you, my brothers and sisters. Endurance is a part of our walk as Christians. Endurance is a part of our walk as Christians. If the Jewish leaders had only endured what God had called them to endure, he tried at every step. He brought them out of Egypt, got them into Canaan. They still wouldn't listen. Read the book of Jeremiah. It is just replete with the disobedience of the people of God. Even in the wilderness, they sat down to eat and drink. They rose up to play. He said, don't go out on the Sabbath looking for food. They went out on the Sabbath looking for food. Some of them got so immoral sexually that in one day, 23,000 of them died. The ones that died in one day, 23,000, were the same ones that said, we want to be freed from Egypt and we want to be in Canaan, but they never made it. Because with many of them, God was not well pleased. My wife and I were reading the other day, and she said this first, and I piggybacked on it. She says, 
I want to be like Abraham because when his life was over, it says, and the Bible says, and he pleased God. I just want to please God. But there's some hardship that's required there. So I have four takeaways. First one, go to 2 Timothy. When you read that statement about God connecting to Christ, we become omnipotent. When we allow our will to be merged with the will of God, it becomes omnipotent. What that means is no power on earth can prevent the will of God from being accomplished in your life. For those of you that have children, you know what that's like. Sometimes they wake up and they say, I don't want to go to school. You know, you say, you going. <laughs> I was raised in New York City in uh, Mama Haynes. There was some Sabbaths. We want to go. She said, you're going to go with a crinkled suit or an iron suit? But you going. Some of you people give your kids options. <laughs> it wouldn't happen in my house. No amens necessary. I was raised in the house. We, were, we went to church because we were alive. <laughs> Anybody know what I'm talking about? Now, do you want to go to church? Not in my house. If you ain't in a stretcher or you're not in traction, you're going to church. And if you say you're sick to stay home from school, when school out, I did that once. I never did it again, Terry. I didn't want to go to school. So I was sick. Uh, I'm sick. When 3.30 came, when school hours were over, I felt really good. So I wanted to go outside. Dad said, oh, no, 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 no. You didn't go to school today. You're not going outside. But I feel better. Oh, no, no, no. You can't have pleasure. Didn't you have? No, no. You, you feel better? Get your school books and do your homework. But I didn't go to school. No, we're going to make up some homework for you. <laughs> That's why now I could, today, I could, I could, I could off the top of my head, recite the multiplication tables back and forth and every other way. My sister, we would sit down at the table to, dad, well, see, my dad's will, he had one will, is to get these two knucklehead kids somewhere. And my sister was, she's a Taurus. She's, you know, I don't believe in Zodiac, but she always reminds me she's Taurus the bull. I said, you and your hard-headedness will land you in hell if you don't straighten up. I'm being candid with my sister. That's how we talk. So don't tell me you say it differently. We got that kind of connection. I want my sister to make the kingdom, but she keeps telling me she's a Taurus, a bull. I said, you better become a lamb and make it to the kingdom. Amen, somebody. But some people are so hard that God can't move them. And all throughout the journey of the Israelites, God was trying to bring them to the place of abundance, but he had to eventually get rid of them and say, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. We're going to find somebody that want to do my will. My four takeaways. The first one, good soldiers endure in allegiance to their commander. The Apostle Paul told his protege, Timothy, these words. He said, you therefore must, what's the word? 2 Timothy 2, verse 3 and 4. Thank you, honey. You therefore, what's the next word? No, you therefore, what's the next word? Must. It's not optional. Must endure hardship as a what kind of soldier? A good soldier of Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. Why? That he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. You like that one, Ian? Pleasing God. 
being in God's army. What is, the, what is the focus of the hardship? To please God. What is the focus of the endurance? To please God. You got to go through stuff, but if you come out and God says, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter, and who I am, well pleased. So write this down. Don't fight to maintain allegiance to a losing cause. God gave me this. You never heard this before. This is my quote. Thank you, Lord. He told me last night, if pleasing, yourself is the def- if pleasing yourself is the default in your Christian life, your Christian life is in default. If pleasing yourself is the default in your Christian life, your Christian life is in default. Point number two, endure a cause that is not self-centered. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 10, therefore, endure all things for the sake of who? The elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Let me pause this very quickly and qualify something that I just want to kill this lie that keeps being told. Paul said to Timothy, don't endure it for your sake, but for the sake of those coming after you. That's why Steve Green has a song, may those who come behind us find us faithful. Paul said, Timothy, I've endured for you. Now you endure for those who are coming after you because somewhere down the road, the elect of God will be relying on what you decide today. Pioneers, praise God for Adventist pioneers. But they didn't start this. People like Martin Luther and Jerome and Zwingli and Huss and Wycliffe during the Dark Ages when the fires were hot, they stood their ground. They endured so that we can have today a movement that is standing on a plain, thus saith the Lord. They endured. We don't endure. We don't have anything to endure today. You know what we have to endure? We endure selfishness. We are enduring our own argument. We are so ingrained in the things that we want to do that when it comes to putting them aside to do God's will, I don't want to. And we're going to find in the judgment that we will either make it or not make it because we did not allow our will to be merged with the will of God. But now let me answer this question about the elect. About the elect. You see, the elect are those who will stand unmoved when the time comes where the world is marshaled together into only two classes. Those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus and those who worship the beast and receive his mark and worship his image. Do you get the context? Only two classes. So when Jesus made these words, when Jesus stated these words in Matthew 24, 24, I've heard this so twisted He says, for false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, what are the next two words? If possible, the elect. And I've heard people say the elect will be deceived. That's not true. If the elect will be deceived, then if possible should not have been there. Let me give you a parlay to if possible. The Bible says it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats can take away sin. Is it possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin? No. It's not possible. In the very same way, when you are sealed in the favor of God, when God seals his elect in the future, when God seals those who stand firm in the light of the mark of the beast 
and those who worship the image, the elect will stand unmoved. And here's my point. If Satan had the power to deceive even the elect, no one will be saved. Am I right? That's why he said to the disciples, do not rejoice that even demons are subject to your name. He says, I have given you power over serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing by any means shall harm you. Luke 10, verse 16 to 18. Nothing by any means will harm you. And I've heard preachers, even in our own church, say, well, the devil can, can deceive the very elect. That's not scriptural. Let me give you evidence of that. Revelation 19, verse 20. Look at the scriptures. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Who did he deceive? Those who worshipped the image and received his mark. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. Will there be those who do not worship the beast and his image? Yes or no? then they will not be deceived. Those who will be deceived will be those who will worship the beast and his image and receive his mark. There will be those who will not worship the beast and his image and they will not be deceived. Can you say amen? Amen. So Satan does not have the power to deceive whomever he wants because the word of God is the bulwark against deception. So when I hear folks saying that even the elect will be deceived, check out the scripture and look at it a second time. If possible, praise God by the light of God's word, those who stand on truth will not fall for darkness. My third point, endure difficulty until it is replaced with joy. Psalm 30 and verse 5, so significant because this fits into the temporary place that we are, many of us. Endure difficulty until it is replaced with joy. Psalm 30 and verse 5, his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for what? For life or for a lifetime, as the King James Version says, weeping may endure for a night, but brethren, joy comes in the morning. I have been there, I have weeped, but I can rejoice now. And you too will come to the places where one day you're going to have to weep. But he says, endure it for the night, because somebody once said, even the worst storm will come to an end. Even the most tenacious hurricane is going to pass by. Even the most difficult trial will one day not be remembered. The former things will not be remembered nor come to mind. So if God allows you to face a trial, endure it for the night because the morning is on the way. That's where many of us fail when we face difficulty. We cannot endure it, and it's just for the night. But the morning is coming. Difficulty, my brethren, is not unusual. Difficulty is not permanent. That's why you have to strengthen the roots of your faith. Mark 4, verse 17, strengthen the roots of your faith. Here's what he said, strengthen the roots of your faith or else hardship will break you. Mark 4, 17, and they have no root in themselves. And so they endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises, for the word's sake, immediately what happens to them? They stumble. There's some people that are not deep enough in the Word of God. There's some people that waste time on frivolous things and they have no roots. They like religion, but their religion is surface. 
They have not faced trials or tribulation or persecution. They are not ready for what's coming. And if you stumble now, God is saying you're not ready. He's going to allow you to stumble now so you can get up and anchor your faith in Christ. So if you stumble, God is saying you're not ready. And if you still persist in not being ready, you're going to stumble again. And you're going to stumble again. Your knees are going to be bloody. Your nose is going to be broken. But you're going to get up. It's better to stumble in the way of the cross than to stumble in the way of destruction. So God's going to let you stumble until you wake up. But there are many people that stumble that never recover themselves. There are people that are here in the church and you preach a certain doctrine and they go back to where they came from because that doctrine doesn't fit. And I'll be honest with you, there's some people that want music over the word. So they go where they feel differently. Nothing wrong with music. I was blessed by that music this morning, weren't you? But God is saying, don't let that be the sign to, to turn off the truth because you want to feel differently. You see, tribulation and persecution are not incidental. But the stumbling that continues to happen happens because of repetitive spiritual complacency. Repetitive spiritual complacency. And this week, some of you are going to be tested again. And if you say, I don't want to, you just missed an opportunity for God's glory to be revealed in you. I don't want to. The only way not to stumble is to anchor your faith in Christ. You know, when Usain Bolt was interviewed, there was so much he was asked, but they said, what is your secret of winning? I mean, where'd you get your drive from? And he said, I win from within. And I thought, I said, is that some kind of a new age statement? I win from within. And I continued to contemplate that, and, I've, and, I, and, I, and I realized what he meant, and which is my last point, which is my last point, Hebrews 11, verse 27. Actually, sorry, I've got to go back. I went a little ahead of myself. I'm going to catch this again. When I talked about spiritual complacency, I want to show you the result of spiritual complacency. Here it is. This is the result of spiritual complacency. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. He was once in the work of God, but he forsook the work of God, having loved this present world. And he decided to go in the direction of the cities of pleasure. And he went to Thessalonica. There are some people that are going in the direction of the pleasure of this world. And what does the Bible say? They are forsaking Christ. So now let me put this back together. When Usain Bolt revealed the secret of his winnings, he said, I win from within. And then it brought me to the passage that I'm going to share with you now. In Hebrews 11, verse 27. I tried to figure out what he meant, and I continued reading his story, and I realized what he meant was he saw himself winning before he saw himself winning. Hebrews 11, verse 27. By faith. By what? By faith. He forsook Egypt. That is Moses. Not fearing the wrath of the king, did he need endurance to make it through the wrath of the king? Of course. 
for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses said to Pharaoh, bring it on. Come on, bring it on. The three Hebrews said, heat it up. Daniel said, where's the lion's den? Let me not make it tough for you. I'll just jump in there. My brethren, when you see what God's will is beyond that moment, we can fear the wrath of anything. This was the secret of the martyrs during the Dark Ages. They were not fearful of persecution because they endured it for those who would come after them. That's why, just before my last two passages, look at this. Usain Bolt said, don't think about the start of the race. Think about the ending. Don't think about where you are now. Think about the ending. You see, in the Olympics, there's this gold, silver, and bronze. But in the kingdom, there's a crown of glory. And there are not three places. There's enough room for those who come to Christ. That's why, speaking of endurance, it's no strange occurrence that Jesus made this statement. Long before Usain Bolt even thought about it, Jesus said, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. I think about the Olympics. One of the most exciting places in the Olympics was at the finish line. Was where? At the finish line. I watched that. I, I, I looked this up on YouTube and I saw the actual event. And there were 80,000 people in the stadium, but the loudest place in the stadium when Usain Bolt won was at the finish line. Because they saw it with their own eyes. They saw it happen. The loudest place, people jumped out of the stands. Some tried to run and hug them. They kept the crowd back. And I, I, I think about this when I think about the statement that Paul the Apostle made in 2 Timothy 4, verse 7 and 8. This is the endurance passage. I fought a good fight. Let's say it together. I have fought a good fight. I have done what? Finish the race. I have what else? Kept the faith. When Paul the apostle stands on that glorious morning, you know what, brethren? I'm going to be there with him. They're going to put on his crown, and by faith, I'm going to get my crown. Can you see yourself? Can you see the invisible? But you got to endure. You got to endure self. You don't have to endure the devil. You've got to endure self. Self is the greatest battle. Everything that hinders your spirituality must be laid aside. Anything that challenges your dedication to Christ must be abandoned. We cannot run the Christian race by looking behind. We've got to keep our eyes fixed ahead of us. So let me end together. Let's read this together. I want us all to read this together. Let's stand and read this together. I want this to be our, I want this to be our declaration for today. Today. Olympic Stadium, the unfallen worlds, heaven, the angels, the Father, the Son. We're all working together. There's a whole crowd around you looking at the way this is going to play itself out. And the apostle leaves these words with us. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Let's say it together. Therefore, we also... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside what? Every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And together, and let us run 
with endurance the race that is set before us. Where are you going to look? Here it is. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. My brethren and my sister, today I'm calling you to endurance. Stop being marshmallow Christians. Don't allow self to get in the way. Ask the Lord to kill the I don't want to in your life so that you can become everything he envisions you to be. Your life will never be abundant if your desire is above God's will. If yourself is the default, then your Christianity is in default. Put Christ first. Can you say amen? I want us to sing the song as we think about how important it is to put Christ first. What does that mean? You got to follow him. If you follow him, he'll take you where he went. That's to the kingdom. May this song be our testimony. I will follow thee wherever you lead me. I will follow thee, my Savior, wheresoever my life may be. Where thou goest, I will follow. Yes, my Lord, I'll follow thee. I will follow thee, my Savior, thou didst You're singing this right now, but your test is coming this week. And God is saying, there's a crown, but are you willing to go through the purification of your own self? Is your will more important than God's will? If it is, you'll never understand the glory of the empty tomb. And your life will be a, a life that is devoid of the power and presence and purpose of God. But if you say, I, Lord, I've been putting my wishes and desires above yours too long. That's why I just don't feel like I'm getting anywhere. So if your desire today is to put your will in the hand of God, to, to say, Lord, teach me what it means to put me aside. And to say, not my will, but thine be done. Is somebody here today that want that in their life? Put your will aside, let God's will be done. Because you're not going to get to the crown unless you endure God's will replacing your will. And that's painful. But I'm going to tell you, the joy comes after that. The joy comes after... You've got to go through some cleansing. But there's a finish line where all that cleansing won't even be remembered. But if your default is self, then your Christianity 
is in default. So let us sing this passage because it's going to bring this endurance process to clear focus because we're going to face some things, but at the end, we'll find the joy is waiting for us. Though I meet with tribulations, sorely tempted though I be, I remember thou must tempt it and rejoice to follow thee. Yes, I will follow thee, my Savior, thou forsaken though I be thou was destitute afflicted and I'll only follow thee I will follow thee my Savior thou didst share that love for me and though all men should forsake by thy grace I follow thee last time through the Jordan's rolling billows cold and deep thou leadest me thou must cross the way before me and I still will follow thee I will follow thee, my Savior. Thou didst share thy blood for me. And though all men shall forsake thee, by thy grace I'll follow thee. As Ben continues to play, Father in heaven, yes, you went through it already (laughs) and you're waiting for us if we are willing to suffer with you we will experience glory with you if we are willing to say not my will but thine be done we will know what it means to experience the abundance of God working in us to will and to do of his good pleasure We will participate in divinity and understand what it means to know that at that moment we become omnipotent in the power of your will and nothing could prevent it. Not even the forces of darkness can prevent your will from being accomplished. The cross could not stop Jesus. The persecution, the torture, the the accusations, the thorns, nothing could stop him from coming forth gloriously. And today, Father, we may have to walk that road but one day it won't even be a memory. Teach us what it means to deny self, that we may know what it means to follow thee from this life into your kingdom eternal. May we endure in your grace, by your strength, and by your power. In Jesus' name I pray. And God's people said, Amen and Amen.